Take your Bible and turn to John, 1 John, not regular John, 1 John, chapter 5. Uh, and I should talk while you're turning there. First off, how many of you are reading in the King James or the New King James? Do we have anybody in the room? All right, one, anybody else grow up reading the King James or New King James aggressively? So you got your Bible memorization, okay. King James and New King James both are great translations, but occasionally require a certain note. And uh, this passage is of particular importance in that regard. So if you can tell, my phone I have here in my case, the back of my phone is a picture of my kiddos in a hammock. And while I was taking comps last week, I had my phone sitting there on the table, and at one of the breaks, one of my South Korean friends walked by and saw Boston's picture and was like, oh my goodness, I look at that boy and just see you. He's like, your face, the faces are identical. And I just, you know, kind of laughed or whatever. How is it that he could look at a picture of my son and see me? Well, and we all kind of understand. Well, it's because we share genes, right? I passed my DNA down to him. We have the same set of genes. And therefore, we're going to have some of the same attributes. Maybe some more than others, some less than others. But, I mean, we all know those families where it's like, my gracious, cloning, you know. Um, you can look at the Night Clan and tell there's red hair that runs in the clan. And it's passed down. We have it. Um, texts were done the same way. The way the Bible was transmitted from the original authors to today was done very similarly with kind of like a genetic idea to it. Remember, there was no printing press when the Bible was first recorded. They were handwritten. And then the way that they made copies of that was by meticulous hand printing. But anytime humans are involved, what will eventually potentially happen? Mistakes will occasionally be made. And one of the standard ways that this would happen would be uh, in a setting very much like this. And let's say we want to copy the book of 1 John. I would read it out, and as I read it, you all would write your own copy. Well, let's say that I accidentally misspeak part of a verse. I just, it chokes in my throat, I say it wrong, or I say it funny, and uh, you guys all hear it one way differently than what I said or whatever. What's going to happen? Every one of the, the copies that y'all make is going to have that same error. And then when we take Leslie's copy and 10 years later, a whole bunch of people start copying that copy, what's going to happen with all of those copies of Leslie's copy? They're all going to have the same mistake. And then Claire's copies, they're all going to have the same mistake. And all of them. And so interestingly, when we look at texts of the Bible, like the Greek and you know, such Hebrew, we can track back the families that they're related to by their mistakes. It's really intriguing. And we have something like 25,000 copies of the New Testament, so it's not like we're dealing with like 12. I mean, it's thousands and tens of thousands of copies. We can tell where they came through, which is really, really interesting. And now, most of them have mistakes of some form or fashion. Uh, Tens of thousands of texts, some quite early, most have mistakes of some kind. Almost all mistakes fall in one of two categories. Indistinguishable is what the right answer is but extremely not important. Like uh, in any time there's narrative where this happened and then this happened, there's a lot of times where we can't tell if there was an and or not. But does that matter? If it was, I read the scriptures and I preached, or I read the scriptures, then I preached, versus I read the scriptures and then I preached. 
It makes no difference. In Hebrew, it's one letter. It's a vav, vav consecutive, that would add that. Some scribe accidentally puts a vav in. It's easy. It adds an and. Who cares? We can't tell the difference either way. It makes no difference. That's the overwhelming majority. There are occasionally a second category, the ones that are a little bit more substantial, but most often we can really tell an easy answer to it. One, the long ending of Mark. Right at the end, we're talking about snake handling and that stuff. That's crazy. That stuff's not in the Bible. It was added later. Um, uh, John, chapter 8, not part of the Bible, actually, 753 through 8, whatever, uh, added much later. In the King James, in this passage, there is a comma added in, what is it, verse uh, 7, that's not in the original. Uh, We actually know when it was first added into the text, it was inserted in the 8th century, and it was inserted in Latin. It was not even added in Greek. If you're reading it in the ESV or the NASB or any NIV, any of the other kind of standard translations, it's going to read very differently, and it's going to read the way that it originally was written. Uh, we have Greek versions of that, the language was written, originally written in, running all the way back to the early 200s. So we can tell Greek early 200s versus Latin 800s. We can tell the earlier ones, the, the more correct one. So just so you know, for those that have read the, the King James, uh, you may actually remember it. Uh, if you haven't, it's going to talk about the, the three, Father, Son, and Spirit. That, that's not actually in there. Um, what I'm going to read here in the ESV uh, is the correct one. Uh, also, I may have just confused some of you because I tried to tackle all of textual criticism in about four minutes, which is ludicrously silly. Uh, if you have questions, I can answer them most likely. Afterwards, please feel free. Uh, I have all of the textual apparatus in my study. If you want me to show you exactly how they test it, uh, I can actually show you every um, major mistake that we have from any text ever recorded uh, and how they have them graded as to likelihood and everything. I can show you anything that you have questions about. But all that to say, for those that are reading, you know, occasionally I'm in the ESV, occasionally it reads a little differently. Uh, if Clay's in the King James or New King James, this one, verse 7, is going to actually read very differently uh, to the point where kind of all of the textual critical study always talks about this verse because of how unique it is and largely because of Erasmus uh, and the Textus Receptus. But that's all. Different story. Um, yeah, you got all that recorded, so there you go. After that. First John chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. 
And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would bless the reading and preaching of the scriptures that we might hear from heaven. Oh, Lord, may we understand your word, believe it, and may your spirit use it to change our lives. Give life and illumination to your word, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Some of you have listened to my ramblings about the comprehensive testing process in PhD land. Some of you have not kind of have to do an introduction with it after this week. Uh, My particular department is uh, kind of notorious in the school for being uh, fairly cantankerous in the comprehensive exam process. What they do is they give you a list of books, and at the end of it, it says, oh, yes, by the way, and all other books that are taught in all other courses of this department, even if you haven't had that course, and even if that course hasn't actually been taught while you're a student. You're responsible for all information, whether you've learned it or not. You're responsible for it. And each day we would go in, Tuesday and Wednesday, for our major, we had minor on Friday, but you get three questions and you have to answer two of them. And they're not guaranteed to be from all the classes you've taken. In fact, actually, uh, several of the questions were courses I never took, but still had to figure out answers for. And so, as you can imagine, it's a fairly... um, it's a fearful process. We can put that uh, delicately. One with, filled with great trepidation. The other thing is that if you fail, uh, they hand you your masters and they th- say thank you for playing. They kick you out of the program. You're not guaranteed a retake. So it's not only this exercise in testing with very little expectations set. I have no idea what a passing grade is. But there's no safety net. It's that perfect combination, right? Particularly disgusting. So when we finish testing on Friday, uh, we all kind of file out the back of the room. We head outside of the library, which is 150 years old and gorgeous. uh, And the four of us from the preaching department kind of all stand there and just kind of start talking. You could kind of watch as the waves of relaxation kind of started to push through. And it was intriguing as the two South Korean guys and the two American guys, as we kind of began to process how life would be different starting the next week. One guy, his parents were coming in from South Korea, uh, I think tomorrow. Uh, He hasn't seen him in five years, and I don't think they've even seen his second child yet. But it wasn't possible. He was in the middle of doctoral work and wasn't able to take the time away. The other guy I don't think actually has been home to South Korea, even though he technically lives there. I don't think he's been home since he started school. And he and his family are moving back this fall to South Korea where he'll finish his dissertation from home, from his home church. And seen his friends, hadn't seen his family. They've been 
here. I, mean, I can't imagine their wives coming here and bearing children and raising children without family, without a network around them. One of those guys is a PCA teaching elder uh, down in Atlanta, interestingly. You know, beginning to think about, like, the ability to read a book that you want to read. The ability to take a day off. You know, most of us haven't taken days off. The guys in that room hadn't taken a day off this calendar year at all. Because it, too much work. It's interesting just to watch as, as like, it hit. Like, you mean I actually can sleep? Or you mean I get to see my kids? I mean, it was funny, the, the, particularly the two South Korean guys, they just kept talking about, like, I can't wait to see my kids. 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 It was intriguing how just one simple test changed our relationship with all of the world around us. And as the four of us stood there and talked, we processed all of the consequences of that transformation. What does life look like now? It looks like moving back to South Korea. It looks like family coming in on Monday. It looks like actually sleeping. It looks like reading books we want to read. It looks like writing a dissertation. It looks, it looks different in so many ways. In many ways, that's kind of how John is doing here in chapter 5 as he's nearing the end of the book uh, of beginning to kind of work through what does it mean that life is different in light of the first four chapters. Now, I normally try to do a little bit of review, but in fact, actually, in the text, John does it for us. Verses 1 and 2 function as a Trinitarian review of the entire book. He's been saying, look, the whole book is about salvation. And it's specifically about kind of how we know we have it and what it looks like to have salvation. And so verses 1 and 2, he he walks us through the Trinitarian nature of this salvation. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. If-then kind of statement. If you believe in Jesus, and by that he doesn't just mean intellectually understand. Demons have that. They know exactly who he is. Remember, everywhere Jesus goes, when he meets the demons, they're like, because they know who he is. They're, they're afraid of him. Satan fully understands who he is. So this belief is more than just intellectually understanding. It's submitting ourselves to. It's, we would call it faith, trusting in. Everyone who trusts in Jesus being the Christ, that he is the one who has been sent by God to save men and women, boys and girls, those people have already been born of God. They already have salvation. It's past tense, they already have it. It's it's present tense, they already have it. It's future tense, they're going to continue to have it and it will be made full. But it is salvation now. In Christ. And then he provides a a kind of a, a second angle on the same concept. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever's been born of Him. Again, it's this transformation. Everyone who loves the Father has been transformed. They've been saved, they've been redeemed. It's as if John is taking the doctrine of salvation like a diamond. Uh, if you think about buying engagement rings or if you buy diamonds, you, know, you, you hold it. You don't just look at it from one angle. You flip it around to see if it sparkles from all the angles. In fact, actually, that's when you know you've got a good one because it sparkles from kind of every angle. You don't want the diamond that only sparkles from one side. 
Like, make sure the ring is put on this way and you only keep your hand like this. It will sparkle beautifully. But if you see it from that angle, it's worthless. So he's saying, look, Jesus' salvation, uh, trusting in him, uh, loving the Father is what salvation looks like. And then even in verse 2, how do we know? Well, we love the children of God. How is that possible? We love God and obey his commandments. His Spirit's working in us. This is Trinitarian salvation. You trust in Christ. You love the Father. You have the empowering Spirit within you so that you may live according to the commandments. This is what salvation is about. But it's almost like John is writing for a whole bunch of teenagers. Talk about teenagers and come from youth ministry land. The first question is, so what? Who cares? I mean, what does it mean to me? I don't really care. That's neat and all. Thank you for sharing. So what? And so John spends the rest of the passage really kind of ultimately dealing with the so what? Why does salvation matter? Why is it a big deal? Who even cares? And it's interesting, as he deals with the so what, it's not, <laughs> I love this, it's not a relationship between heaven and hell. I mean, that's certainly the truth. But when he goes to talk about why salvation is so important, it's not a conversation about, well, you get out of hell, though that is really significant. It's a conversation about it changes your life now. Your relationship with the world changes now. Your relationship with yourself changes now. Everything changes now. And so John, much like my classmates and I, kind of contemplating what does life look like now, he begins to kind of contemplate, okay, church, if you trust in Jesus, if you love the Father, if you are filled with the Spirit, your world will be different. We're going to look at three ways. First, the saints of God, this transformed salvation, these new people, are going to have a new relationship with God's commands. The way they interact with God's law, the way they interact with God's commands is going to be totally transformed. It's turned inside out and upside down. It's made all new. Look at verse 3. For this is the love of God... That we keep his commandments. So you want to know what Christianity looks like. You want to know what it looks like to love the Father. It's obeying him. And as a child, this was so foreign to me. Until I had children. And then it was very clear to me. One of the great ways, kids, you can express your love for your parents is to obey them. They understand that. They get that. It's part of the design of how we operate. But the intriguing part is what he follows with. And his, God's commandments, are not burdensome. I think it's significant here that this is not, it's not in a subjunctive. It's not in a might. It's not in a should be. It's not in a quite might possibly be. It's in a they are. If you are a child of God and if you are transformed, his commandments cease to be burdensome. 
Now remember, part of how John has been structuring his arguments thus far is to say, look, when nature changes, consequences are demanded. They are required. They they will happen. When you change the nature of a thing, the way it functions is altered as well. If I take my glass of water and I pour sour milk in on top of it and then try to drink it, it will make me sick because the nature of the thing has been transformed. Therefore, God's people have been transformed, so their life is going to be made different. And specifically here, God's commandments are made new to them. And they're made new in such a way that they are not burdensome. Their life and light and joy and delight. That's what they are. Now, the intriguing thing is, is that there's some of us in the room that, you know, in our part of spiritual development, maybe right now we're just so in love with the Lord that we get this. We're like, well, yes, of course, I delight in him. It's a joy to be gathered with the people of God on Sunday. Yay, I'm so glad God commands me to do this. It's great. I love it. I love preaching the word. I love reading the scriptures. I'm so glad God commands me to do it. I love prayer. I'm so excited God commands me to do it. There are, however, some of us, though, that hear this, read this, and we read it with a tremendous amount of dissonance in our soul. Where we read that God's commandments are not burdensome to his people, And we go, well, then why are they so burdensome to me? I mean, if the scriptures say his commands aren't burdensome, why do they feel so burdensome to me? And John's implying, I think, here a couple of answers, and I'm going to suggest a couple of more. One answer that he's been implying all the way through is that you may not know him. And that is actually reality. Uh, This is one of the great struggles of growing up in the South. Growing up in the South, everybody I knew said they were a Christian. Everybody I knew said they loved God and they talked about God. They rarely talked about Jesus, but they loved the idea of God. And they loved the idea of salvation. They loved the idea of church. But so, so, so many of them did not know the reality of God or the reality of his love or the reality of his word. I remember at one point in my childhood, I was uh, put in a situation where I interacted with a whole bunch of students and there's probably 60 of us. And looking back on it at the time, I, I suspect of those 60 students, I bet you there were maybe three believers. Yet every single one of them actually professed the faith. And there's this reality that living in the South, there is a great danger that we are those people that profess that we know the Lord. But then when it comes time to actually deal with it, we really don't. And of course, that's one option and one that certainly needs to be considered. Uh, A second option is because we've misunderstood or misread or mistrusted God's promises for how his law works operates. We misunderstood what we talked about in Sunday school today, that when we are redeemed, God takes away the idea of our merit-based salvation and trust. He puts Christ's merit in place. 
Christ has paid the penalty. Christ has satisfied the law. Christ has been enough that you couldn't be. And sometimes, some of us, honestly, we don't trust that. We're inherently kind of Roman Catholic in our approach that it's Jesus plus something else I do that satisfies God. That God cannot be pleased with me as I am. That God cannot be pleased with me until I've done X, Y, Z thing. And friends, that's actually missing the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is you're never good enough in the first place. You're not good enough even with the Spirit of God living within you. It's perfection required. And you can never be perfect. The only way His commandments cease to be burdensome is when you can do them joyfully out of freedom and delight, knowing that you're going to fail along the way. Knowing that you won't be perfect but that God will be victorious. A third reason maybe why some of us find his commandments quite burdensome, and I would suggest in a room like this, this is probably more common than we might like to suggest. It's that we've grown lazy in our walk with God. And honestly, When we grow lazy in our walk with God, when we grow cold in our love for Him, when our prayer life begins to dry up, suddenly those commandments get increasingly burdensome because the Spirit is less helpful in providing victory. The Scriptures do speak about the Spirit's involvement this way, that we can grieve His ministry in us. That we can sin in such a way that He does not answer our prayers. Men, if you don't love your wives, it's abundantly clear. If you don't love your wives, the Lord doesn't answer your prayers. It takes His Spirit's helping hand away from you in, in, in a certain way. If we don't forgive others. And I would suggest that for some of us, this is probably a much greater reality. Is that for some of us in the room right now, we hear this, we think, man, God's commandments are burdensome. They're hard. They hurt. They're difficult. They're demanding. They're, and, uh, well, you know, maybe part of that is because you're doing it on your own. You've grown so dry on the inside, grown so weary on the inside. You've lost that empowering help of the Spirit, not that He's left you, but that His felt presence has. And so when it comes time for you to interact with the commandments of God, you're just so tired. I would suggest if you're in that last category, Friends, it's time to go back. Go back home. Utilize that new nature. Return to the God who loves you, who has redeemed you. Spend that time in prayer. Spend that time in His Word. He will bless you through those things. Verse 3 lays out this new relationship with His commands. They're not burdensome. I'm going to lovingly say this. If you find His commands burdensome right now, you are doing something wrong either in how you think or how you feel or how you act. Because God is not a liar, and he himself said his commandments are not burdensome. So if there are, problems not on him. has to be with you. Verses 4 and 5 continue, though, and say, look, it's not just a relationship with his commandments. It's a relationship with the world around you. 
Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. I love this. What is the victory that has overcome the world? Now, if most of us are going to answer this, we would think, I got it. It's the cross. I'll go with the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. I know it. I got it. My class hard questions in Sunday school. I know this one. The answer is Jesus. And the answer, you'd be wrong. <laughs> At least by what John says. What is it that victory that has overcome the world? What is it that we get to see the transformed nature of the new man or woman of God? How will we have victory over the world? It's interesting. What's his answer? It's your faith. It's not the cross external to you. It's not Christ dying on the cross thousands of years ago. It's the consequence of that cross inside you now. I love how tender John's approach is here is to say, look, you want to see where victory of the world, victory over the world takes place. Where is the location of that victory? It's inside you already. That cross is so powerful, what Jesus does there. His spirit residing in you, so powerful. Victory of the world's already taking place. It's taking place in your faith. It's taking place in your heart. It's taking place in your head. It's taking place inside you. You've been made new. Thirdly, we're going to skip down to verses 9 through 12. The saints of God with this transformed nature, this salvation, they have a new relationship with truth and life. And we're going to kind of combine these because John does. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. So if you have to listen to somebody, which you do, listen to God because he actually knows what he's talking about. People, not so much. For this is the testimony of God that has borne concerning his son. So this is what the testimony is. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony. Again, where would you find this? Where do you find the testimony of God? And again, you're going to go to the Sunday school answer. Well, it can't be God, it can't be Jesus, it must be Bible. And it's interesting, that's wrong again. Where's John locate the testimony of God? It's inside you again. Changing the location from the Sunday school answer to the very nature of the people of God. They have the words of Christ in them. That's why you just read the Bible and it does transform you. It's because God's word's already in you and as you read it, it stirs it up in the spirit, uses it to transform you. We have a new heart with God's law written on that heart. We find out Ezekiel and Joel and other places. Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has testimony, has the testimony in himself. It's in him. God's already done this. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. This is the heart of the testimony of the saint is that life is found only in Christ Jesus and God the Father has given him to us. 
And if you have that, verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This truth, inherently connected to the truth and the knowledge of truth, the the relationship with truth is the life, the presence of life. So as the saints interact with God's truth, it, it resides in them and bears fruit in them. And one of the aspects of that is eternal life itself. You see, part of what John is trying to reinforce with looking at these consequences is the essence of salvation is a major, incalculably large nature change. I remember being in middle school. uh, Weird things you remember from middle school. Um, One of my teachers used to say uh, that if you know the Lord... As a middle schooler, you have a better understanding of who God is and his truth than the wisest of pagan PhDs. And you go, well, I can understand that in the context of the Bible. And then my teacher would take it further and say, a middle schooler who trusts in the Lord God and knows him understands creation and science better than the wisest of pagan PhDs with worldly wisdom. And the point that she was trying to make was to say we, we sometimes undervalue, we undersell how big the change of regeneration is. You know, honestly, sometimes, and I, I think the, the church right now, the American church particularly, I think is very guilty of this, is in an effort to try to sound humble and to try to relate to the world, they try to say, you know what? We're just alike, you and me. I mean, we have the same kind of struggles. We have the same kind of... No. No, this is not true at all. There's absolutely nothing true about that statement. You know what's, uh, you know what's absolutely untrue? That the unbeliever and the believer are like in any other way aside from the image of God. There's, there's nothing true about that because there's nothing in common other than we're made in the image of God. Because the regenerative process that God does in his people is so catechistic cataclysmically large. New heart, new will, word of God written on the mind, impressed in the very soul of the person of God. They have the the Holy Spirit indwelling them, Trinitarian power being poured out upon them uh, intercessorily, mediatorily from Christ and internally from the Spirit. There's absolutely this magnificent transformation that happens. Now, do we still struggle with sin that is common to the common man or woman? Of course we do. I understand the point. People are trying to appeal to that commonality. But please, for evangelistic purposes, let us understand and realize that transformation that God does when he regenerates a saint, I mean, in terms of scope, is probably only surpassed by the act of creation itself. Meaning creation, we went from nothing to something, That's probably the only thing bigger than going from something bad to something great. It's magnificent what God is doing. It's it's transforming. You think about just these three things, the relationship change with God's commands, relationship with the world, and relationship with truth and life itself. And interestingly, John is identifying the location of the good things as inside the person and the location of the bad things as outside the person. You have to think in some way John's probably an optimist. It is really as positively framed as you could possibly get. 
You know, and again, some of us, some of us might be a greater struggle. Again, our battle with sin is one that we sometimes feel like we don't win. Maybe the difficulties of our lives, maybe the trials that have been placed in front of us, we, we struggle to believe these things, to wrap our minds and our hearts around these things. And I intentionally skipped over the key verses here. How is this even possible? Verses 6 through 8. Christ is the agent of salvation. This is he who came by water and by blood, water referring to his baptism, blood referring to his cross. So some totality of the ministry of Christ from him taking on his messianic function at baptism all the way through the cross, resurrection and ascension as this great mediator, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, so not just by baptism and having God's hand placed upon him, but by the blood. He paid for sin. He accomplished it. And oh yeah, by the way, the Spirit is the one who testifies to this. Because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. We have three proofs of this great work. The Spirit working within us, transforming us. The baptism of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ. All three of these things agree and Christ has accomplished salvation. How is it possible that you may have a new nature? Christ has purchased it. It is done. You have it if you are a saint of God. Now you may be working hard to kind of drown it. You may be drowning it in misdeeds. You may be trying to suffocate it with the smoke of sin. But you have a new nature whether you like it or not. It's why in Romans 8, he can say, I'm confident nothing can separate you from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. Your new nature requires it. You cannot get away from that. Part of what John is building is to say, this is how we can discern what Christianity is. So much of Christianity is by the new nature. You can't see a relationship with God, but you can see the outworking of the new nature. It's what we look for, it's what we build on, it's what we develop. And very quickly, I would give just this one application Part of what John is trying to frame out here, and we're going to see in the next section too, is an encouragement for the saints of God to work at their salvation because they're already predisposed to victory. Kind of think of it this way. as Christianity and successful Christianity specifically is designed like one of those giant domino trains. You know, the domino train where you push it and the one falls and it knocks them all down. And then like, you know, the giant pyramid and then 100,000 dominoes falls. Go on YouTube. You'll watch them for hours. Christianity in many ways is like one of those giant domino paths that's built on an incline. And all of the dominoes are already teetering towards success so that all it requires is the slightest touch of word sacrament or prayer and they all fall over 
You're not having to push Christianity uphill. You have the Spirit of God residing within you, a new nature that He's nourishing. All you have to do is just tap. (laughs) Spend time in prayer. Spend time in Word. Spend time with the people of God. Sacraments of God and begin to tap. And the dominoes fall and, and growth takes place. You can't help it. Now for those of you in here that are growing great, I encourage you to keep doing it. Utilize that growth that's already taking place to further build on it. You will never regret any aspect of spiritual growth. I mean, no one on their deathbed is like, mm, man, I wish I had grown less spiritually. Like, no one ever thinks that. For those of you that are just kind of floating along like a log in a river and not really paying attention to anything, my loving encouragement is it's time to grow. Because while on deathbed, there are, no one says, I wish I had grown less. There are plenty that will say, I wish I had grown more. And for those of you that are discouraged, please just remember, you have a new nature. The Spirit of God that works within you, you have victory that God has promised. Go labor and trust the victory will follow. I saw a, this is years ago, but I saw a stat that was really interesting talking about uh, somebody had done a, a scientific study to look at are specific races better at math? And of course the answer is no. It has nothing to do with your skin color, your hair texture, anything of the sort like that. It has everything to do with uh, the culture in which you come from. Uh, so what they did is they gave these, I think it was middle schoolers, high school kids, I forget exactly what age bracket it was, but they gave them a math problem that from their kind of their tier of mathematical formulas or whatever and said solve it. But the problem was is it was an unsolvable problem. And they tested to see how long the kids would work at it before they gave up. And it's interesting because we tend to think of like, you know, Indians and such being, you know, from India being really brilliant at math. And the crazy thing is those kids would work at it for like 12 minutes. Totally unsolvable math problem, completely impossible. They'd spend a crazy amount of time working at it. And then your average Anglo kid would give up after like 12 seconds. Look at it and be like, no, nope, I can't be bothered. <laughs> Wonder why our math scores are bad. It's not because we're dumb. It's because we grow discouraged at any sign of difficulty. And unfortunately, this is sometimes how we interact with our Christianity. Instead of spending the time laboring for benefits that will eventually follow, we look at the difficulty of the first 12 seconds and say, nope, I can't be bothered. May it be that we in here, instead of that wearisome kind of giving up, throwing up our hands, can't being bothered, May it be that we trust God's promise that his commandments are not burdensome, that his spirit is powerful, that we have the testimony within us, that King Jesus is that great, that God has redeemed us. May we trust his word and labor for our salvation. Working it out with fear and trembling, trusting that Christ has redeemed for the Father a people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We do confess our sin of not trusting it, of thinking that when you've told us that your commandments are not burdensome, that we think they are. When you've told us that your yoke is easy and your burden is light, Lord, we confess sometimes we work really hard to make it heavy and difficult. 
doesn't really make any sense that we make ourselves miserable this way, yet we do it constantly. And we confess our sin and ask that you would forgive us and that you would give us a greater sense and understanding of how light Christianity actually is. That we might find joy. Oh, Lord, for those of us in here that have no joy, forgive us for our lack of joy. Forgive us for our harboring clinging to the miseries of this world instead of clinging to the joys of the life to come. Fill us with the joy of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.